2: Previously, on Murder on the Space Coast. Yeah,
0: Evan. I have? You know, you just continue to bullshit and bullshit and lie. Continue that lie. We'll see how far it carries your life. The time has come to be a man and quit bullshitting people. The bullshitting is over. Be a man for once in your I life. I am being a man. No, you're not. You're being a punk. You're sitting here. I'm being a punk yeah, now? Yeah, you are. Know, you're lying. You're lying. Conan and lying. You guys are sitting there trying to shove me into I'm something I am trying to get you to tell did. the truth from what's in your life. You're a great example for me. Tell truth you're from what's in your, your life. Me. I didn't
2: do it. I've never killed anybody. So you didn't kill Courtney. Courtney Cranston? Absolutely not, no. What has it been like for you all these years oh, being in here?
0: Maybe. When I first got charged with this crime, and they put me back in 300 back there with those guys, I've never been in trouble. Never, I had, you know how many points? I had zero points on my record. I go back there, right? I'm in there with these evil people. It was the most stressful thing I've ever been through in my life. I got teeth knocked out. I fought for my life in there.
2: I'm John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast, Where Justice Lies. In 2006, Jeffrey Charles Abramowski was convicted and sentenced to life in prison for the brutal 2002 Clawhammer murder of 78-year-old Dick Crandall. Now, I told you Thursday that I was able to scrounge up audio from this case that I had not heard before. And so I've spent several days watching video and transcribing. I came across one disc that well, I think it's perfect to present right now. So we are switching gears on the fly here and reworking the last few episodes of the podcast. This is truly a work in progress. I told you previously that I had reached out to Dick's family and they respectfully declined to take part in the podcast. Remember, they believe Jeff is the killer and is rightfully paying for it now with a life sentence. Well, here is Dick's daughter, Judy Watts, from October 2006 reading an impact statement before Jeff is sentenced. I'm not going to interject much in this episode and just let the audio speak for itself.
3: May it please the court, the following statement is from my heart, soul, mind, and spirit. With respect to all survivors of a violent crime, murder. I am here for my dad, Courtney Dick Crandall, a good man, a husband, a father, a grandfather, and a great-grandfather and much more. A friend to so many and a man who believed in helping those who were in need or down on their luck. He could verbally make you mad or bring you to tears with words, but Dad never physically hurt anyone in his entire 78 years. Dad loved to talk and socialize with all people from every walk of life. I do this in his honor. As hard as this is to say, I also owe this to Jeffrey Charles Abernowski so that one day he will know the magnitude of pain and suffering he has inflicted upon so many on May 18, 2002. Words my mother said many, many times haunted me after Dad's murder. Mom said, Dick, you're too trusting in helping those less fortunate. As long as I can remember, Dad has had a need within himself to try to help those less fortunate. There are no words to begin to describe the impact on my life due to the violent, brutal...
2: Okay, so this audio is from a court proceeding, and occasionally it will drop out for a second or two, like it just did there.
1: Yes,
3: we all plan for natural causes as life continues, and even then, death is hard. However, when a loved one, my 78-year-old dad, is brutally beaten to death for what? Money? Spite? Revenge? Indifference? No words will ever heal or take away the pain, suffering. And negative impact this brutal murder of my dad will forever have on my family. Nor will there ever be peace as we are taught to expect. My dad has been brutally stripped from my life. Dad learned the news of his first great granddaughter a couple of days before a senseless murder. We found a note on Dad's kitchen table after the murder saying, it's a girl, referring to the sex of his unborn great granddaughter our family's newest addition. My dad was excited about the addition of his new great granddaughter that he would never have the chance to hold, let alone see, due to an indescribable crime, murder. Embedded in my mind and my soul and my heart for the rest of my life will be the doorbell ringing. Monday evening, May 20th, 2002, Officers at the door telling me my dad had been murdered. Shock, the extreme disbelief of the word murdered. I remember asking the officers over and over again, are you sure dad was murdered? I could not understand why anybody would want to murder my dad. The emotional phone call I made to my daughter, who was five months pregnant, telling her of dad's murder as I had my husband drive me to my dad's place. Sitting in our car outside of, outside of dad's place with the yellow roped off crime scene. Seeing my dad's body removed from his home in a body bag. Homicide detectives asking me why I was there and who I was. My worry and concern for the emotional and physical health of my only child, my pregnant daughter trying to find the right words to tell my 78-year-old, physically crippled, frail mother at her assisted living home, Dad was dead. I was feeling an unbearable pain inside myself and did not know how much Mom would be able to emotionally handle. The first time I saw Dad's brutally beaten body is when the reality set in on how badly Dad had been beaten to death, brutally beaten to death and murdered. Seeing the many close iron marks on his face from one of the murder weapons, his ear beaten off, his face black, blue, purple, and swollen, his broken jaw, his teeth knocked out, his nose bent sideways, the hole in his skull from the hammer, where you could see down all the way to the brain matter. Then another reality of what Dad went through when cleaning up the crime scene, the fear of wondering if the murderer would come back to the crime scene, knowing the detectives suspected that someone that knew dad committed this real murder. The fear when talking to people that knew dad that one of them could be the murderer. Asking family and friends to stand guard outside dad's home so my daughter and I could go through dad's things. I cleaned up all of dad's blood myself with many tears and heartfelt pain in my heart for what he must have gone through. Carpet cut out by the police on the living room floor where dad had laid murdered. I picked up pieces of the, of the small pieces of a clothes iron, which was one of the murder weapons used. How can I explain the flashbacks of so many memories of great times our families had together raced through my mind? I know I could have hired a cleaning service, but out of love for my dad, I knew that I had to be the one to clean up dad's blood and the murder scene. I will never understand how anyone could brutally do this to another human being, much less brutally be a 78-year-old senior citizen. At the funeral home, in private, my heart was breaking as my 78-year-old mother, struggling, adjusted her oxygen cord, as mom only had one lung and a crippling rheumatoid arthritis. With my assistance, she got out of her wheelchair to kiss her husband goodbye, and after she saw dad's head and face battered cry out, he did not deserve this. My parents had a love and a bond through good and bad times that was stood time my mom lost her will to live after my dad's murder and they were buried side by side eight days apart in our family cemetery out of state for the past four years the haunting images, the nightmares the sleepless nights replaying it over and over in my head, heart and soul all day, every day, all night questioning why and who could have done this listening to the evidence, viewing the photos of my dad's brutally beaten body the statements, the police reports the autopsy report saying that dad was still alive during the brutal beating. It's never knowing, yet fearing that you know all too well those final moments. What they must have been like. The anxiety of waiting the trauma and the uncertainties of a public trial. The six attempts for a final trial. The emptiness, the loneliness, the anger. Losing control over my life. The unbearable depression I still had a problem with four years later. The flashbacks of Dad's murder when I watch TV shows, movies, the news, the words homicide, murder, will, now forever, a part of my life. Flashbacks of Dad's murder whenever I, <clears throat> whenever I see or feel a clothes iron or a hammer. The horrible truth is my life will never be the same. Has that a profound impact? Yes, I am a survivor by definition, but I feel more like a victim. Life goes on, and I have to take one day at a time. I mostly feel I am scarred for life, as the depression I still have inside seems to overwhelm me constantly. I must trust in God, my family, and myself. The time will close this open one in my heart. Closure is a word I will never know. No one deserves to have this cross to bear and I pray from this day forward no one falls victim as I have by the actions of Jeffrey Charles Abranowski. and for that I will remain angry, sorrowful and pained. I pray that someday, Jeffrey Charles Abranowski will be blessed with a conscience so he can feel for himself all the pain he has inflicted upon so many and for what? I fear for the lives of others if and when Jeffrey Charles Abernowsky is released into society again. Please, I respectfully request that Charles Jeffrey Abernowsky, who showed no mercy when brutally beating my dad to death, who was tried and found guilty of murder, received the maximum punishment the Florida law can and will allow. Thank you, Your Honor.
2: Next up is Judy's daughter, Terry Hatfield Dull. She has been my point of contact on Facebook for the family. And she, too, is reading a statement about how her grandfather's murder has affected her.
1: There are so many things that I wish that I could understand about the senseless and brutal murder of my pop. There are so many ways that my life has been forever altered and so much guilt I will carry with me for the rest of my life. So many questions that will forever go unanswered. How can I describe to the court the loss that my family has endured in the last four and a half years? My grandfather and I were very close, two peas in a pod. I grew up spending almost every summer with my grandparents, first at the lake in Missouri and then the beach in Florida. My cousins and I running the gamut and keeping them both on their toes. So many wonderful, beautiful memories. And through the years I was forever entertained by my papa's honoriness and sarcasm. Many thought him and I understood each other like no other, speaking some secret language. And then on May twentieth, two thousand and two, my world changed. As my husband held me, my heart broke as my stepfather tried to articulate to me that my beloved grandfather had been murdered. It was late that Monday evening, and I remember trying to compose myself to the point of being able to drive from my home in Orlando to be with my mother in Merritt Island. It took me one hour to make the drive, an hour alone, crying and begging and pleading with God to prove that it was some sort of mistake. Mom and I were allowed to enter my papa's home on Tuesday, May 21st. And as he walked into the trailer, our eyes immediately found themselves looking at the floor where my grandfather's body had been brutally beaten and left to bleed to death. The carpet soaked with blood, splattered everywhere, broken pieces of clothing iron, one of Jeffrey Avramaski's choice of weapons. Somehow the idea that he beat him to death, not merciful, not quick, not impulsive gunshot or stabbing or even strangulation, but the idea of him striking him over and over and over again has haunted me. I sat on the couch that day, just a few feet from the blood-soaked floor, and aided my family and friends in retrieving my grandfather's belongings. All the paperwork was brought for me to decipher and organize. I sat there with the stench of death. I sat there five months pregnant with a granddaughter my papa would never know. I sat there crying for trying to imagine the last moments of his life. And I sat there trying to recall my last I love you, my last hug or shared laugh, and I sat there yelling at God while begging him to make it stop hurting. As days went on and details emerged, we learned the extent of the beating. We feared for our own safety, the safety of my my grandmother. Our world had been shattered and we knew it would never be the same. My mother insisted on seeing my grandfather at the funeral home before they pepped his body. I struggled with the idea of seeing him in this condition, but I knew I couldn't let my mother go alone. So I held her hand as we walked into the cold, dark viewing room and saw the body they claimed to be my grandfather. The pictures are painful for any stranger to view. I can imagine that it must have been hard for the jury to look at those photos during the trial. But now, Your Honor, Jeffrey, I ask that you imagine that person as your father or your grandfather. I can never take that moment back. And to this day, I cannot enjoy my grandfather's memory without seeing him in that state without my mind punishing me with the snapshots of his injuries, without seeing his beaten face, his broken teeth, torn ear, the hole in his head exposing his brain. Imagine not being able to recognize someone that you love so much. Imagine your eyes frantically looking for something familiar to prove to yourself that this is the person they tell you it is. My eyes settled on my grandfather's hands that day, his undeniable, distinguishable hands, and I burst into tears because it was true, it was him, and he had been murdered. To this day, when I think about my thought, my fingers will curl as I recall his nails being trimmed back so closely. I remember that day thinking that it must have hurt so much, and then realizing that the ultra-close clippings were done after he had passed. And ironically, it's the reason that we come to you today. The DNA found belonging to Jeffrey under my grandfather's nails was incontestable, first to the detectives, then to the family, and eventually to the jury in the court. What is a fair price for Jeffrey to pay, for taking my grandfather so viciously, for robbing me and my mother of memories that don't involve his murder? No one can understand the impact that a murder has on a family left behind, or the crazy thoughts that it provokes, the questions that it leaves. Shortly after the murder, my mother caught herself walking through the home aisle of Target and studying the various types of irons and holding them and studying them, whereas myself, over four years now, and I can't sleep in a hotel room until the iron has been removed from my closet. I remember receiving the autopsy in police reports, and my mom admitted to me that she lay in the floor of her living room and tried to reenact the pose in which the police corner report described. We've had so many conversations trying to understand how this happened. Did my grandfather have a chance to fight back? Was he aware of what was going on? Did he die alone, aware of the pain in the room closing it on him? What were his last thoughts as he laid his own pool of blood, draining from his body? The trials have been difficult. I can only describe it as a wound that has never healed and coming back into the courtroom and reliving the details of the murder is like pulling back the bandages and reopening the wound. I've been left to question my faith, my values, my belief in mankind. Something that I don't like to admit is the embarrassment that I feel when I have to tell someone that my grandfather was murdered. I can't explain it exactly, but along with the pain and the hurt and the anger, I feel embarrassed, like somehow this shames our family. How is that fair, Your Honor? Why is it that I'm embarrassed for a crime that was committed at the hands of Jeffrey Abramowski? And the worst part through all of this is that he's never shown one ounce of remorse for his actions. To the contrary, he's been rude and vocal and disrespectful to my mother and I each court passing, as if this is somehow our fault. We are merely living in the world that Jeffrey has created for all of us, paying the price for his actions. I'm paying the price, Your Honor. My mother's paying the price in our tears every night. On May 18, 2002, my grandfather, my papa, was killed in his home. And you will never know, Jeffrey, the true impact that your actions have had. But I pray that you will be faced with the images of my grandfather dying before you. I pray that it is his face that you see each night as you drift to sleep. You shouted out to the judge in our last trial, Will I get out of here before I'm 50, Your Honor? I ask the court today, I ask you, Your Honor, to sentence Jeffrey I'm you to life in prison.
2: Now, a quick break to tell you about some of the other great podcasts my colleagues are working on for the USA Today Network and a special announcement from me.
1: A dead district attorney, a dead barber, a drug-addicted judge, a businessman hiding, armed, and scared. One woman, one name, binds them all. Rainella. The fabric of her life is woven with tragedy and violence, politics and pain, and even now, suspense. Come meet her on Season 1 of Suspicion, available on just about every major podcast platform.
2: Hey guys, this is John Torres from Murder on the Space Coast hoping that you'll join me on March 6th at the Surfside Playhouse in Cocoa Beach for our end-of-season wrap-up event. The cost is $12.50 a person, which gets you some great apps and a chance to speak with and ask questions of some of the players that made Season 4 so compelling, including Jeff's daughter Jamie. There will also be an update on Season 3's Brandy Hall case. Wine, beer, coffee, and soft drinks will be available for purchase, and a portion of the proceeds are going to the Brevard Opioid Abuse Task Force. We're not making any money on this event, so the more people who come, the more we can donate to such a great cause. What are you waiting for? Get your tickets now. Go to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com and click the link. They were teens, locked away for life for murder. But now they're getting a second chance. Uncertain Terms, a new podcast from T.C. Palm, explains why judges are re-sentencing youthful offenders, why families are having to relive the painful murders, why some killers are being set free. Look for it on tcpalm.com or your favorite podcast app. We're back. Last up is Jeff himself. Judge Rainwater allows him to read from a statement where he, once again, maintains his innocence.
1: You know, as, as this court knows, my client has continued to maintain his innocence. Therefore, you can't apologize for something you didn't do. He would like to make a statement. Go
3: ahead, Mr.
0: Avamowski. Can I face the family?
3: no sir you need to face me.
0: This is the first time any of you have heard me speak in the past four and a half years. I want the victim's family to know that my heart does go out to them for the loss of their father. Courtney Crandall was a friend of mine. I am now here before this court to be sentenced for a crime I am innocent of. First off, let me tell you a little bit about me. My name is Jeffrey Charles Abramowski I'm a 45-year-old father of two. I've been an auto upholsterer for 20 years. And before that, I was a federal law enforcement officer in the United States Coast Guard for six years with an honorable discharge. I was credited for close to 100 rescued victims. I risked my own life on a daily basis to save all these lives of people I'll never see again. And this is how the state of Florida repays me. Your father was a friend of mine. The state's motive was Mr. Crandall was to have left me in Orlando and to have made me walk back to Melbourne. Well, what the state attorney didn't tell you is that Mr. Crandall called me the very next day to apologize and he even took me to the Melbourne Square Mall and had me, bought me lunch. When Mr. Crannell wanted to go to the VFW, to the karaoke's, he called me. When he needed someone to listen to his problems, he called me. My truck was towed and put in the impound lot in Palm Bay. Mr. Crandall used his own credit card to help me get it out. And yes, this was after he left me in Orlando. Two weeks before the murder, I helped Mr. Crandall search out and purchase a jacuzzi. Everybody saw it in the crime scene photos. I then helped find a truck and a trailer big enough to move it to his new home. I also was the one who took the golf club from Bruce Foley the weekend before his brutal murder. What was Bruce Foley doing with the golf club? Trying to take their father's head off. Does any of this sound like there was bad blood between me and Mr. Crandall? No. Mr. Crandall left me in Orlando three months before the murder. Three months. Not a day, two days, a week. Three months. I never killed Courtney Crandall. He was my friend. I was wrongfully convicted and today will be sentenced by you, Judge Tanya Rainwater. A jury found me guilty because of a handwritten DNA report where three of 13 loci were supposed to have matched me. The same jury who witnessed every single state witness get caught lying on the stand and stating stating things that they admitted they have never told anybody before in the past four years. The same jury who heard the state expert witness Dr. Gary Daniels state and it's in in the transcripts that the DNA test results were ambiguous at best. For those of us here who don't know the definition of ambiguous it means doubtful and uncertain. That's what Webster says. The same jury who heard Cindy Zugler swear under oath my DNA was not found under Mr. Crandall's fingernails. The same jury who heard Detective Gary Harrell state while under oath, I never checked Mr. Abramowski's alibi for Saturday, May 18, 2002. You all saw my first and second trials. The first one ended in a mistrial. As you may recall, Robert Achala told his court while under oath, that Detective Gary Harrell took him to the crime scene, showed him where Mr. Crandall died, in his home while showing him crime scene photos of how he was murdered, how he was dressed, and what jewelry he was wearing. Then Mr. Achala was taken to the East Precinct on Merritt Island to make a falsified confession tape against me. Just for the record, I have a notarized sworn statement from Richard Mayer who stated Detective Gary Harrell did the exact same thing to him, except taking him to the crime scene because obviously that was already purchased or whatever, and was promised his case could turn out a lot more in his favor if he testified against me. I'm an innocent man who was wrongfully convicted for the death of a friend, Mr. Courtney Crandall. And, and listening to what these women said about their father, Dick was a nice guy. He helped everybody. He helped, he was my friend. I had nothing to do with his murder. I sat here for four and a half years and listened to people lie on the stand and people make up these rotten things. And you know how bad it made me feel that, I, my heart goes out to him, but it made me feel real bad sitting here having these people believe that I killed this man. I didn't hurt anybody. And now I'm going to be sentenced. For something I had nothing to do. I had an alibi for that whole weekend. If Gary Harrow would have took the time to look for Saturday, he would have saw that I was at the mall in Orlando. Chris said he took me there to buy that knife at the Walmart. They don't even sell a black-bladed, black-handled Gerber. They don't. And yet, he sits there and tells you, oh, I took him there. We did go there. Uh, but we separated in the store. Did you see Jeff purchase the knife at the, at the register? Oh no, I went back to the car. Did you see it in the car? No. Come on, this rainwater. But like I said before, I didn't hurt anybody. And my heart goes out to this family. I lost my baby sister while I was in here to an aneurysm. The only person out there who I think, besides my, tri- my children, really believed that their daddy was innocent. I lost my baby sister. So I know what it's like to lose something. But like I said before, I'm an innocent man. I didn't hurt anybody. The evidence showed it. That's all I got to say. In there.
2: Next time on Murder on the Space Coast, I play defense attorney and try to make a case for Jeff's actual innocence. Saturday,
3: you saw him roughly about what time? It was like it was
1: like 4:30. Cause we were out there washing my car, and I seen him walking around picking stuff up. Oh, okay.
3: Fredo's knock on your door. You advised that you were expecting
2: us or, uh-huh. or was going to call. Just, I don't know. Um, I haven't seen Dick in a,
3: in a while and I was concerned. Okay.
2: That's all for now. Remember, if you enjoy investigative journalism like this, please help support us by subscribing to Florida Today by going to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J O H N A L B E R T O R R E S. And follow the podcast at 321 Murder. For more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to Murder on the Space Coast.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast brought to you by by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.